Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show FDNY legend Chief John Norman. Now, as with so many of my guests, these revered high performers in their space also go to some courageously vulnerable places, and Chief Norman is no exception. So we discuss a host of topics from his early childhood and some of the areas that set him up for success, not only in fire prevention, but ultimately working as a firefighter in FDMY. Some of his notable rescues, an incredible insight into the collapse of the World Trade Center, the inability to save, his near-death experience after service, transition, mental health, firefighter fitness, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Chief John Norman. Enjoy. Well, John, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? I'm at home. I just drove home from the Adirondacks in upstate New York. So I'm back on Long Island, uh, which where we've lived for the last 30 years. So my first American experience, I was a camp counselor on a camp in the Adirondacks for six summers. So whereabouts were you in there? It's called the Great Sacandago Lake. Uh, The town is uh, Edinburgh, town nobody ever heard of. It's the best kept secret in the Adirondacks. So we just uh, spent the weekend. We spend almost every weekend up there all summer, every vacation chance we get. So. Beautiful. Yeah, I was up um, t- near Tupper Lake, a place called Long Lake. Yeah, oh, we know it well. Yeah, it's gorgeous country. We usually do a drive up Route 30. Uh, 30 runs north and south, and we do it up all the way over, and then we'll cut over to the thruway over by uh, Lake Placid and come back down that way or you know, go vice versa. It's just such a relaxing journey, gorgeous country. But Tupper Lake is about six hours from where I live on Long Island. Where we are uh, is only four. So that makes it a doable drive. Like I said we drove down this morning. So Beautiful. Yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. When people think of New York, they always think of the you know, sprawling Manhattan or some of the boroughs. And they don't realize a couple of hours out of the city and you're in this beautiful countryside. Yeah, not even. I mean, you go half an hour north of New York City and you're in some gorgeous territory. So. Yeah, and the further up you go, the better it gets. Absolutely. Well, I want to start at the beginning of your journey, but before we do that, I know that your dad has an interesting background. He was a volunteer firefighter, but he was also a World War II veteran. 
with this lens that you have now as someone who's spent five decades in the fire service and obviously been exposed to the physical impacts of the job, the mental impacts of the job, when you look back at your father, what did he carry home from war with him? Oh, he was an amazing, uh, just an amazing man. You know, I am so grateful to have had him. Uh, I wish I had recognized earlier what he had done and what he meant to us. Uh, his stories, you know, he told some amazing stories. He didn't share a lot, you know, the trauma, but uh, I'll never forget the name Balak Papin Borneo. You know, he told, and all my brothers will say the same thing. If I hear another story about Balak Papin Borneo, you know, how many people have ever heard of it? Nevertheless, been there, you know. But uh, he was uh, right out of high school, joined the Navy. He was right in 43, uh, the height of the war for us, and uh, was on convoy duty. Actually, it was they were, they did convoy duty. Uh, first, but then they went to a hunter-killer group trying to attack uh, the submarines that were picking off the convoys. So they had an escort carrier and a group of destroyer and destroyer escorts. And somehow the uh, one of the uh, submarines got inside the screen and torpedoed them. And they were amazingly lucky. I mean, these were, you know, cheaply built escort carriers. They weren't the big fleet carriers. Uh, they were just enough to carry, you know, three dozen planes and provide a landing pad so they could go out over the with the big gap between the air coverage from Europe or from the United States and provide convoy protection. And this thing took two German torpedoes and only six guys were killed on the ship. More people were killed, the air crew. I believe lost eight members of the air crew that were up uh, in the air when the torpedo struck and ran out of fuel before they could make land. So they lost eight people in the air crew. They picked the crew up pretty much intact. All the escorts managed to pick up everybody off the sinking carrier before it went down and uh, basically put them back on another ship, gave it the same name. And now Europe was winding down at that point. It was, uh, that was late 44. Uh, and they gave them their 30-day survival leave for being sunk. And now they had a new ship going out. And they went out to uh, the Pacific. And it was uh, actually partaking in the Okinawa landings. And then they ended up going to Borneo after the Okinawa landings. And, you know, his world experience was just amazing. Uh, and his view of the world, he you know brought back to all of us and instilled in all of, I have three brothers and a sister, and our whole life was uh, one of service. You know, you do uh, good things for other people. It's what you're supposed to do. Uh, I think you may have heard the story about his mother, his, his mother, uh, burned to death while he was in high school in our home, her home. And, uh, you know, that gave him a great desire to be a firefighter. And he came back and he did it, you know, as an active firefighter for over 50 years. 
uh, he would still drive the first new engine because he lived around the corner from the firehouse, about you know 200 yards from the firehouse. And he would drive that first new engine well into his 60s. So uh, that was just what he did. You know, when he got to the point where running to the firehouse was too much for him, you know, he would walk over leisurely and he'd make coffee for the guys when they got back. But he would still be there, you know, and always sharing his experience, his point of view. He's certainly not shy about making his point of view known. And uh, people respected him for it. You know, didn't always agree with what he had to say, but they respected him because he would tell it like it is. And I think that, you know, sunk into all of us. So talk to me about your childhood then. Um, firstly, what, do you, what were you doing as far as athletics and sports? Uh, nothing. I was, we grew up uh, in a, a rather poor setting uh there was a football club in town the inwood buccaneers uh, that cost money to join we didn't have money for that uh, i went to catholic school and they didn't have an athletic program so what we did was we made our own fun i mean i was doing <laughs> some of my experiences today compared to what i did in high school junior high like set the stage for what I became. I was doing confined space entries, crawling into storm drains at 12 years old. You know, we were not supposed to be there, but we used to torment some of the older kids. They would chase us, and we'd scoot into this 16-inch diameter storm drain and go 100 to 200 yards underground, and they couldn't follow us. <laughs> Of course, we had no idea how dangerous any of it was. You know, I, I grew up in the shadow of J, uh, John F. Kennedy Airport. Jamaica Bay uh, was our home. So we'd be out swimming in Jamaica Bay. Uh, that was our recreation. Uh, climbing towers, uh, the, <laughs> there was an electrical transmission tower. We climbed it and... Uh, put a rope swing up and we'd swing off of it into the water, uh, which today, if people did it, you know, their parents would be arrested for child abuse. My parents didn't have anything to do with it. This is, they'd say, okay, be home before the streetlights come on. That's it. And uh, we did. And you took care of each other. We had a, a group of friends and everybody looked out for each other. And we got home in one piece. Yeah, I had, I had a similar upbringing because I grew up on a farm and it was kind of, uh, what they call it, latchkey kids. You know, you just got home and you fed yourself. And I mean, we had great meals around the dining room table. So when we got together, it was very much like a firehouse. But there was a lot of time where you were left to your own devices. And I look back now and wonder how I didn't die 20 times <laughs> over. <laughs> yeah, we did some silly stuff. We had a uh, a gasoline storage tank farm in town right uh, when i lived down near the bay and uh, the tank trucks would come and they had to make a stop at a stop sign and we took to hitching a ride on the back of the tank trucks these tank truck drivers would come to the stop there and we'd run up and climb up the ladder onto the back of their truck 
And then we hoped that they caught the red light at the next intersection. Otherwise, they were off onto a highway. We might not, you know, get a stop where we could get off for quite a while. And I never forget one day, three of us go to run out there, myself, my brother Warren, and this guy, Tommy Curran. And we go to run out, and something stopped me. I don't know why I stopped. I didn't get on the truck. My brother Warren was the only one who got on the truck. As the truck pulls out of the stop sign and pulls forward, there is my father hanging out the window of a car who's giving him a ride home from work, screaming at my brother Warren. Oh, man. And Like I said, fortunately for me, you know, I just didn't get on that one for some reason. Something made me stop. I don't know why. But, yeah, the things that we did uh, could have gotten us in serious, serious trouble at some point. Fortunately, we made it through. <laughs> well, that's actually a good a good time to just put in a tangent quickly. One of the crazy things that I've witnessed in the fire service, I only spent 14 years before I transitioned out to focus on this, but I ended up working for four departments because my journey took me from the East Coast out to the West Coast and then back to the East. Um, and so you get to see four different hiring practices. Um, the very, very first time I ever put any sort of app in after Fire Academy was uh, down south, and they did a kind of um, communal testing where then they'd send all the results to all the fire departments around. And there was a guy from Miami Beach um, that was putting taking pre-apps, so I put it all in. I was a little bit older. I, was, I think I was 27 when I graduated. Um, and so I'm like, well, I'm going to be very honest. Yes, sir. Back in the day, I've tried a couple of things that were you know, perceived as naughty, but I'm sure honesty is more important than anything else. Um, anyway, that was screwed up and thrown back in my face. So I realized um, that you kind of have to lie to, to really make it through some of these testing procedures. With all your experience now, what is your perception of some of the kind of faux choir boy standards that we set that actually most of us that are good at this job have probably done some things in our past that, you know, would possibly irritate the law enforcement community. <laughs> yeah. Like I grew up straight and narrow. So, you know, I, did I do stupid stuff like, you know, climb on the back of the truck? Yeah. But I wasn't into, I didn't even drink until it was legal. I mean, I was 18 years old in New York state when uh, it became legal. Uh, when I at that time it was still legal to drink at 18. Several years later, about four or five years later, they raised the age to 18. I just my father wouldn't tolerate it. You know, you didn't do drugs, you didn't drink. Uh, okay, when it's legal, when you're legal, you can do whatever you want. But uh, I was not that way, and I kind of yeah, I was on a straight and narrow. Uh, I understand, you know, you do stupid things. You get speeding tickets, you do parking, you know, violations. But if you're, you know, out sticking up old ladies, I'm sorry. I don't care if you were 18 or 16 or whatever it was. You know that that's wrong. Uh, I'm one of those kind of guys that uh, you got to know right from wrong. And people let us into our into their homes and they expect us to be trustworthy. So that's important to us. I'm not saying, you know, I wouldn't uh, maybe fudge a speeding ticket or something like that. But I say anything more serious than that, you got to own that. 
And yeah, do you get a second chance? Yeah, sometimes. But if you want something badly enough, and here's here's the thing, you know, those rules were all known in life. You know, you want something, don't screw up. Yeah, that was interesting because, I mean, I think obviously there is a spectrum. And if you're an arsonist, maybe the fire service isn't for you. You know, if you've done, God forbid, anything with children or a serial thief, then yeah, yeah we'll be entrusted. But as you said, speeding tickets and some of even, you know, some people that did things in the past that were in illegal and now realizing have huge medicinal oh. benefits, there are some, some of our laws that are... Um, not not ridiculous, but as you said, there's there's a misdemeanor and then there's a you know um, you know a federal crime and there's there's a, there's quite a long um, spectrum and what I've seen was almost like yeah. a zero anything in your past, which I think excludes some very very good candidates. You wean them out through the severity of whatever they had been caught up with when they were younger, but I think being around some of that, especially if you grew up in a you know a less uh, enlightening or lifting yeah, community more tolerant neighborhood yeah, yeah you you may have seen and done some stuff but now you become a great firefighter a great p police officer because of overcoming some of the stuff earlier in your life yeah that happens it happens my my thought on it though has always been there are thousands of great candidates you know if i can get a great guy who doesn't do anything you know and I don't have to worry about his behavior. I'll take him over somebody that's eh, maybe a little sketchy. So that's just my, I'm out of the decision-making process, so it doesn't matter any of what I, what <laughs> no, I have but to say. But this is the thing. This is an interesting perspective, and that's why I'm asking, because you know it's just not a question that you hear very often. Well, you talked about your dad volunteering through, you know, when you were growing up as a young man. What was your perspective or kind of um, lens on the fire service as the son of a volunteer fire? What were the influences at that age? Well, there was always the opportunity for him to, you know, basically play with us at the firehouse. Uh, he was a dispatcher on weekends, and we lived around the corner at that point. So we would take his lunch and dinner to him at the uh, at the firehouse and wait there while he was eating and then bring the plate home after he had finished. But in the meantime, we got to play on the fire trucks. So growing up in a firehouse like that, man, uh, you knew, you know, a lot about it before you got started. There's the, you know, the impact that it has on family dinners. You know, he'd run out in the middle of the night, uh, Maybe at dinner time, you know, it was there was always that issue. Sometimes, you know, we didn't get to go to parties because he was, you know, at a fire or something like that. And the one, the big impact was when he got badly hurt. Uh, he fell off a ladder and broke his back, and he was in a body cast for about six months, full body cast from the neck down. Uh, that was huge. He was out of work, uh, ended up, you know, getting fired from the job he was on because he couldn't go back to work for six months. So that was huge. Like I say, we were poor to start with and uh, that hurt, but the guys in the department, you know, did the best that they could to try to make up for it and you know, took care of us the best they could. Uh, I, one of my first jobs, as soon as I turned 14 was uh, with 
a, another firefighter who owned a restaurant in town, you know, he gave me a job, gave my brother Warren a job, gave my brother Joseph a job, you know, so that we had some money there. So walk me through then, were you always wanting to become a career firefighter or was there a profession first? Well, I didn't know what I really wanted to do. I don't know any, you know, 18 year old that really knows. I had a hint, but at 14, I started, uh, well, I had been following fire trucks. You know, I was a buff, if you will, uh, going to every fire in a neighborhood. And there were a lot of fires in that neighborhood at the time. There were a lot of vacant buildings in town. And, you know, I'd take my bicycle there. I started taking pictures at about 14 years old, taking pictures of fires, bringing them back to the firehouse, showing the guys who were in the pictures. Uh, my second job, there was a fire equipment distributor uh, and fire extinguisher repairman who opened a business in town. And I started working for him at 14 years old. Uh, spent the next six years working there on and off for him, uh, learning about extinguishing systems, learning how to recharge fire extinguishers. I was always heavily involved in the fire service, uh, learning about sprinkler systems. That was all part of my, uh, like I say, high school year, uh, high school years. Hanging around the volunteer firehouse, there was uh, two brothers, actually in Inwood, we had about five or six New York City firefighters who were also volunteers in that department. And they were very influential on so many of us, uh, the next generation. This fellow, Joe Ball, uh, I was at the firehouse at around four o'clock one afternoon in Inwood, and Joe came in and I had asked him several times, what's it like to be a career firefighter? And he said, oh, it's just a great job, great job, you know. So one afternoon, I said, hey, Joe, what's it, you going to work? Okay, yeah, how's that, you know? Yeah, oh, come on, I'll show you what it's like. And he took me into work in his firehouse in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn. And uh, I, th I had no idea about what a career firefighter was. I thought he, they did cop tours, you know, 3 to 11, 4 to 12, uh, midnight to 8, those kind of shifts, eight-hour shifts. And it's now about, I don't know, four o'clock in the afternoon. I thought we we're going in till midnight. And when I have worked, I have school the next morning. I'm still in high school. And we get into the firehouse and it's a very busy place. Uh, Engine 230 and Squad 3 at the time were in the, was in that house. And it was an eye opener. I said, man, this is absolutely fantastic. You guys get paid to do this. This is amazing. How do I get this job, you know? And they were all, yeah, kid, finish high school first. You know, you got to finish high school first. Got to take the test. You know, they told me the process. And uh, from then on, I was really hooked. I wanted it. I wanted it badly. Uh, of course, college, you know, high school is one thing, but now the end of college at the end of high school is coming up and okay, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? Well, my father said, you're going to college, get over that, get that through your head. You're going to be the first Norman in our family to go to college. So I don't care what you do. 
he was pushing me hard. He wanted me to go to the Naval Academy, uh, Annapolis. And I was okay with that. I, I started the application process. He had made some of the connections. You got to get an appointment from a congressman. He had made some connections that, uh, okay, you get in, get it accepted and you'll get the appointment. Well, that didn't work out. Uh, I went for my physical exam and the Navy dentist said, no, I don't think so, son. So uh, now I was lost. I, I hadn't even applied to another college. And now it's, I guess that was in probably April of 1970. And they said, no, you're, you're not going to be accepted. So uh, the Ball brothers, again, Joe Ball and his brother, John Ball, uh, the New York City fire officers, uh, said, try Oklahoma State University. That's where we went. It's a great school. Has a great program, very diverse program. Anything from fire protection engineering, you know, you get courses on municipal fire administration, which served me well in my life. Uh, I ended up getting out without a degree, and I came out and got hired as a fire protection designer for a company in Queens. And my first job out of college was designing a portion of the high-pressure standpipe riser for the World Trade Center. Uh, the World Trade Center was a five-story deep hole in the ground, at least the building I was dealing with. The two towers were actually topped out with steel, but uh, the one, my next job, uh, the windows weren't even in place on the upper floors. So it was very early in a construction project there. And that was another great, great experience. I mean, all of these things from Oklahoma going as a fire protection student, being a student firefighter, living in Stillwater Fire Department's uh, campus fire station, going on to the fire protection engineering degrees, all helped me immensely in my later years as a New York City firefighter and fire officer. I got an education in building construction that was unimaginable. You know, if you're going to be a fire officer, you have to know building construction. And I got the firsthand introduction to it going from the ground up in all kinds of buildings, everything from stores to high-rise buildings, you know. So how, it, how the path flowed the way it did, I have no idea, but uh, I'm fortunate that it did. Now, through all the time that you're working in the fire prevention side, are you already testing for FDNY? Was it very competitive back then? It was competitive. What happened was they gave a test in 1973. They only give the test every four years in New York City. Uh, 1973, but the application period was in 1972. I was still out in college in uh, Oklahoma, and nobody told me about the test coming up. So I missed the first entrance exam that I was eligible to take because I didn't know about it. Uh, so 77 comes along, the next test is due up. In the interim, New York City had gone through a terrible budget crisis and they laid off over a thousand firefighters. So there was no idea whether this was going to continue. Uh, there was a lot of drama that they might not give the 77 exam. And there's a deadline because at the time you could not have reached your 
28th birthday. So in 77, I was still eligible. If I missed that test and had to take the next one four years later, I would not have been eligible because I would have been over the age limit. So there was a lot of pressure there. Uh, again, I was doing a job that I liked, but I didn't love it. Uh, it was, you know, like I say, I saw it as a useful skill, useful career, but not one that I really loved. I didn't get up in the morning and say, oh, man, thank God I get to go to work today. Uh, so I took the 77 exam, and I took other exams, too. I took the New York State Police exam. I took the New York City Police Department exam. I took the Washington, D.C. firefighters exam. I took several exams, you know, looking to cover my bases. And uh, fortunately, fortunately, I did take the New York State police exam because it showed me a weakness. I had gotten out of high school and I had been a runner in high school. And I thought I was in good shape still. You know, Now comes, uh, let's see, 77. So I was 25 years old. I hadn't really run hard in seven years. Fortunately, the state police had a mile run portion as part of their physical exam also. And I realized I'm not in the shape I was in five years ago, seven years ago. So I had to get back into that kind of shape for the fire department exam because that was a competitive exam and physical was competitive at the time also. Uh, the physical was not a job-related physical, but, for example, there was a mile run on it, uh, which was timed. The faster your time, the more points you were awarded. All the ex all the component parts of the exam were timed, and points were based on how well you did. So realizing that I needed to get into shape, I did. And I did pretty well, actually. Uh, I scored better than some college uh, yeah college athletes that I was working out with because they didn't practice the exam they went with the fact that they were in great shape again you know football players and and what they presumed to be good physical condition but they weren't ready for the exam so luckily I got myself into that condition and did well enough to get hired pretty early now, you, you mentioned about potentially losing a 1,000 firefighters. And we'll get into 9-11 and just the horrendous impact that losing 343 initially had on the department and especially the special operations community within FDMY. With this, again, this, this incredible lens on the fire service that you have now, that is one of the immediate go-tos we hear over and over and over again. I mean, even you know the, the heroes that were hailed early pandemic were now being called selfish if they didn't get vaccines and they're they're being fired so it seems like we're you know the 9 12 people are up you know standing and applauding there's that kind of reverence for the fire service but when it comes to budgets and their careers and the impacts on their families and whether a fire station is staying open or now your closest is two first Jews over that seems to be a reoccurring theme in in not just in the States, in London and so many other places too. What is your perspective of the yeah, the the quick kind of reflex knee-jerk to cutting 
first responder, um, you know, jobs and, and, and our ability to deliver service when it comes to these budget crunches? You're a number. That's all any of us are. And we have to keep that in mind. Uh, yes, like you say, okay, you're heroes when the politician wants a, you know, uh, photo op. But we've seen it over and over and over again. Uh, 1975. Uh, 1975, I went to an airplane crashing uh, just off JFK Airport. And it was a huge, huge loss. There were, I believe it was 106 people killed on the plane. Eight or ten survivors, though. And the first new engine company arrived on the scene. It's in a desolate area. They found these survivors. That section, it was the tail section of the plane that broke loose. Some of them were still strapped in their seats. And the first new engine picked them up. At the time, EMS in New York City was in absolute shambles. They transported the survivors to the hospital on their ambulance. First two engines just grabbed all the survivors, picked them up, took them to the hospital. Three days later, half of those guys that responded were laid off in the budget crisis. So, yeah, you were great heroes, you know, all kinds of news coverage. And three days later, you're just old news. Uh, we saw it again, over and over and over again. Uh, the 2002 or 2003 budget cuts in New York City, uh, that was almost a punishment. Uh, as you say, in 2001, fall of 2001, the public was applauding, you know, first responders as heroes. Uh, when Mike Bloomberg took office as mayor, he closed six engine companies. He wanted to close 25, not because he had to, not because of budget issues. He wanted to show power that I can knock these heroes off their pedestals anytime I want. And he closed six engine companies just to prove that, uh, kind of like Ronald Reagan did to the air traffic controllers. Okay. You want to go on strike? Go on strike. You're out of a job now. So I believe Bloomberg did that to show his power, his authority, that I'm going to put air. I'm, I'm the boss of this city. And you all listen to me. And we see it over and over again. Yeah. As long as there is a service that meets the bare minimum, that's that'll be good enough. And uh, that's just the politician's way. You know, the, their money uh, determines and the uh, the public, the squeaky wheel is going to get their attention. And firefighters and police officers and any other public servant, uh, you can just bet your, you know, that's your life on that. That. Don't don't think you're special. Uh, it had a corrosive impact. In 75, we had the layoffs. Uh, shortly thereafter, we had firefighters in New York City go on strike. And I believe part of it was because of the fact that 
they saw that they weren't, they didn't have a contract with the city now. And I don't mean the written legal agreement. I mean that bond that we're here for the city and the city's always going to be here for us. But once they realized that only they're only being treated as just another number, okay, well then why can't we go on strike? And it worked, you know, it that had a corrosive impact on a department for a whole generation afterwards. Guys who went out on strike will never forget that. You know, they didn't want most of them did not want to go on strike. Actually, the union voted against going out on strike. But when they were treated like dogs, they felt that, okay, you know what? I, the city doesn't owe me anything, and I don't owe the city anything. Then. So it was, a, it was a horrible impact. Well, I think one thing that the public aren't told, too, is that there's this massive reduction in the ability to serve, but they're not getting a tax refund. You know, they're, they're paying their same taxes and they don't realize that that station is now closed or browned out. And it might be 10 extra minutes before that crew gets in. And when, when it used to be an engine or a truck with four or six people, now it's, you know, four or five maybe. So um, I think that's not articulated as well. And And in my opinion, with this kind of small career, but an interesting kind of gypsy-like multi-department way, is we as a profession don't do a good job of educating the people what we do and therefore have them advocate for us. Absolutely. Uh, you know, part of the issue is we don't want to blow our own horn. Unfortunately, it's something that we have to do. You have to have a public relations component. You've got to have a public information officer who is out there touting all your actions all day long. The flip side is the public doesn't believe they'll ever need our services particularly fire, uh, unless they're in, you know, the heart of a ghetto that is burning to the ground around them, nobody thinks they're going to have a fire. You know, Long Island, where I live now, everybody here assumes that, oh, it, it's never going to happen to me. Heart attacks, medical emergencies, yes, and they want the ambulance service, but they don't really think that having a fire is going to ever happen to them. So we have that issue as well. Some of it, again, is our lack of playing the PR game. But part of it is just the public doesn't really think that they're going to need us any moment. There seems to be as well this kind of job justification element. And a lot of us that worked in combined fire and EMS systems that are prevalent now, you know, we're actually running a crap load of call, calls every single shift, even if you're not, you know, the Bronx or Brooklyn and the the glory years or the war years that's now being replaced by the firefighter paramedic getting their ass handed to him on a rig instead um but even in the kind of department culture there seems to be this busy work mentality now for me fitness training you know actual operational training and then rest and recovery getting time where you're not is so important but throughout my career i've seen them just give more and more and more and they have less tools to even do it with and certainly less time off to process it. Yeah, I mean, you have to have that balance. And it's not about busy work to me. I mean, I have, I could justify anything, you know, based on the amount of training that's required to do this job. The, like you say, physical fitness, that we need to have our people in good physical shape. Uh, and they need to be rested. I mean, all of that plays a role. 
Is there a need to do building inspection? Absolutely. Hydrant inspection? Absolutely. You need to know your district. You need to get out into your buildings as firefighters to be good at it. Uh, there was a proposal. There's a group in New York City called the Citizens Budget Commission. And it's basically an advocacy group. And for years and years, everything they did, every year there'd be a recommendation. Cut the fire department's budget. Cut the fire department's budget. Cut the fire department's budget. They wanted to give it to the police because one of the heads of the organization was a retired police officer. And one year they actually came out with a proposal, uh, pay the firefighters more, pay them per inspection, give them a bonus for how many inspections they do per shift. And, you know, I was like, uh, there are guys that they're not going to care whether they get the extra dollar or shift or whatever they were going to authorize, you know, but I don't need to be paid to do my job. You know, I need the incentive to be good at what I'm doing not an extra you know, dollar per building or whatever they were going to give me. Because I know what that would lead to. That's just going to lead the guys sticking their head in the door, saying we're here, and not have any real impact. I want the guys that are going to be there wanting to do the job because it's the right thing to do. So, yeah, that's a rock in a hard place there. Absolutely. But these are important topics because, I mean, we're, as you said, we're very – I would I would like to think it's a very um, humble profession. As you said, we don't go around beating our chest. There's certainly people out there with social media accounts that every car fire and structure fire they can't wait to post a picture of themselves in front of it. But but um but that we kind of we kind of shoot ourselves in the foot as well because, as you said, if we're if we're the quiet professional, which some of the special operations communities refer to themselves then you do just kind of get unnoticed. But we do have to, I think, brand, and I hate that term, but we have to educate people not only on what we do, but how important it is to have the staffing, the training, and the physical fitness behind that. And that also takes time. And you won't shout at your security guard in your apartment complex for not chasing people 24 hours a day. They're they're there because you want them ready God forbid someone tries to break into your apartment. Well, it's the same with the fire service. We've got to get away from this. They always need to look busy thing and actually allow them to do their job and stop micromanaging. Absolutely. Like I say, it's damned if you do and damned if you don't, but we have to find that balance. So I know you've, you went into FDNY at 79, is that right? Yes. So walk me through what the physical standards are like then and if if there was any kind of conversation when it came to the mental health side at your kind of you know front door of your career well the physical standard was set by the entrance exam again the fact that it was a competitive exam and you had to score a 95 or better to get hired on the physical exam that's just the reality yeah you could pass the exam with a 70 they would never get to you on the civil service list. So that got people initially in the door in pretty good shape. Like I said, uh, mile run. In the, in the past, there were you know exercises, lifting weights, and so on. Uh, by 79, there was an attempt to make it job-related. 
they had things like the we had a five foot high wall and an eight foot high wall and uh some of it was ridiculous there was an arm hang you had start at a chin-up position and the longer you held that position the more points you got uh it was supposed to simulate, okay, if you were stuck hanging off the end of a ladder for some reason. I don't know. Uh, there was some other stuff that was thrown in. It, it was ridiculous. But some of the things, like the eight-foot-high wall, that's something we actually do in New York a lot. Our roof firefighter has to climb up onto the roof of a bulkhead in full bunker gear, uh, you know, with a mask. And you got to be able to climb up and that bulkhead may be eight or 10 feet off of the ground and you have to get yourself up there. Are there some tricks? Yeah. Use the pike pole to help pull yourself up. Use the uh, Halligan tool as a step to get yourself 18, 20 inches off of the ground. But you're still in bunker gear. When you're taking the exam, you're doing it in short gym shorts, you know, and a T-shirt. So. Uh, it gets you people who were in pretty good shape to start. The problem was there was, at, particularly in 79, there was no follow-up. There was no annual medicals. Uh, there were people who were so out of shape that I don't know how they stayed as firefighters. As a matter of fact, I had a guy when I was a captain uh, I was a captain and a firefighter came to me, he wanted to transfer into my company. And he was morbidly obese, 350 pounds at maybe six, six, one. I says, and uh, go lose 150 pounds and come back and we'll talk. And he was offended that I, you know, I'm, he was in a, in a ladder company at the time, not a, you know, slashing busy company, but a fairly busy company. I, I've been doing this for 10 years. I'm in good shape. And I says, you're not in good shape. You are in horrible shape. And uh, he left. He went out to another company. And he had a heart attack. He was our first fatality after 9-11. Uh, you know, it was a heart attack waiting to happen. And we've had those guys all along. Uh, that was really one of the things that, made our medical examination much more strenuous. Guys used to scam the system. We had guys, again, all along that, you know, they were in good shape when they got on the job, but now they're 15, 20 years into it, and they've been sitting around eating donuts all their career, and they're in horrible shape. Uh, when we bought in the bunker gear in 93, that forced a lot of those guys out. They they said, I can't do this. But I predicted we're going to lose a lot of guys to heart attacks in that first year. Fortunately, that didn't happen. A lot of them just retired. But we used to have a, an annual medical, and guys would scam the system. They would go sick from home the day they were supposed to get called to headquarters for their medical and there was no follow-up they would go back to work the next set of shifts and say yeah i had a cold i didn't feel good and nobody followed up on how come this guy hasn't had a medical in five years well because for five years he's been scamming the system so after a few tragedies there where that came to light that guys hadn't been going to their medicals the department got 
computerized and it got wise. And if you went to to medical if for any purpose after your uh, after you called out sick or whatever, and they see you hadn't had a medical in over a year, yeah, okay, you're getting it today. So we finally got you know wise in that mode. Uh, the annual medical now it's a lot more job related. Uh, there's a tread treadmill or stairmaster component where you're monitored. You're you know. Uh, vital signs are monitored throughout the, the workout. And if you don't meet it, okay, you're going to light duty right away. It's not something that, okay, uh, come back and try it again. No, you're going to light duty until you get yourself in shape. So, well, there's took some tragedies to get to that point, though. Yeah, and this, it always does. You know, you look at anything, whether it's bailout rope or SCBAs or whatever it is, you know, there's, there's, the innovation is usually there, but it takes a while before there's buy-in. And this is what's so so hard to understand. I spend a lot of time bringing on guests to really illustrate why the environment we work in is set up for sets us up for failure physically and mentally. It just does the shift work and the sleep deprivation, etc. So you have to be able to be the kind of person that, despite your environment, you're still gonna eat well, exercise, etc. Um, but I've seen a lot of resistance in my career by administrations and even by unions to some of these fitness standards. And, and you always get this, oh, you know, you're, you're trying to take our jobs. It's like, well, no. In Florida, when I pass my fire academy, it's called minimum standards. They label it. This is the shittiest you should ever be in your entire life. But then you go into the regular fire service and you start to see some of this self-serving where people are protecting themselves rather than doing what's right, not only for who we serve, but our ability to perform and our longevity in and after our career. Yeah, it's for our benefit. I mean, this job takes a tremendous physical toll and you have to be prepared for it. There's no doubt. I mean, like you say, we owe this to the citizens. We owe it to our families. We owe it to the fellow firefighter next to us. I had a you know a, a great story. Uh, I'll leave the fellow's name out because I I love him dearly. But we we're working one day. I'll even leave out the unit. But it was a very busy unit. We we're in a very busy unit, and we go to a fire. We've gone to three or four fires that night. A lot of work. And I see him, he's pulling ceilings right next to me. I'm pulling ceilings, he's pulling ceilings. And all of a sudden, he goes white, almost drops to his knees, drops his hook. Are you all right? He's, yeah, 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 I don't know. I don't know. I, I just don't feel right. All right. We'll go down to the rig, get him some oxygen. I tell the boss, I said, boss, I says, this guy just had a heart attack, I think. And I was a medic at that point. I had been a... Uh, advanced medical technician out on Long Island where I live. I recognize the heart attack sign. And he said, no, I'm all right. I'm all right. And the lieutenant says, come on, we'll take you to the hospital. He says, no, 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 I'm okay. I'm okay. He's getting off duty in about two hours. He goes back to the firehouse. Nine o'clock, he goes off duty. And he's on vacation for three weeks now. That's what he didn't want to go to the hospital because it was going to interrupt his vacation. 
couple of months later, we're upstairs making beds. And he says to me, he says, what would you say if I told you there's a guy working in this company who's had a heart attack? I'd say, who is it? He says, we can't have that. Got a guy in, especially in this company, our job is rescuing trapped firefighters. If a guy had a heart attack and he can't do the job, somebody else is going to pay the price. He says, well, the guy doesn't want to retire. He, you know, got a lot of reasons. I says, it's unacceptable. We can't do that. We, you got to tell me who it is. We got to stop it. And he says, well, it's me. And remember a couple of months back, I had that episode and you said, you got to go to the hospital. I said, yeah. He says, well, I went to my doctor that day and he told me I had a heart attack. But I felt okay afterwards. And I did some, you know, exercises, did rehab. And uh, before I came back to work, I bench pressed 600 pounds. And if my heart didn't blow out then, I figured I was good to go. I said, <laughs> no, no. That's not, it's not good to go. And what about the next guy? If you could do it, what about the next guy who has a heart attack? In New York City, we have what's known as the heart bill. Any heart attack is a presumption that it was a job-related heart attack. And if they can say, that, well, look at this guy. He continued working after a heart attack. They can now deny everybody else who has a heart attack forever and ever. And they don't get to retire on three-quarters disability pension for a heart attack because you decided you wanted to keep working. So he finally retired, and uh, you know, he's still around, thank God. I mean, that's 40 years ago. He's still around. His heart attack did not kill him, but uh, he, was a, he was an amazing character, tough guy. But that's not the norm. No, exactly. And I think it's, that's the part of this conversation that is often lost. It's not you're trying to take our jobs. It's if you get you to the place where you're fit and healthy again, you're minimizing the chance of a line of duty death. And obviously for him, I'm sure that getting off shift, getting away from the stress, sleeping in his own bed every night, probably contributed to him reclaiming his own health and forging longevity in his heart. Or he was just a lucky guy. Or that. <laughs> <laughs> or both. <laughs> so what about mental health? When you walk through the door before 1980, what, if any, is the discussion about the, the things, not only that we see in the job, but even if, is there any discussion on what you're bringing to the job? Well, that was a different time period. I mean, a lot of, uh, we, we didn't have peer counseling. There was a counseling services unit, which was mostly concerned with counseling people who were addicted to either drugs or alcohol, uh, which was, rampant in the fire service at the time when i grew up when i started in 1970 you came out of a, a good fire and first thing you went and did was have a couple of beers and you sat around the firehouse talking about the fire over a couple of beers that was our counseling our peer counseling was done among ourselves with a little alcohol and you know that was in a volunteer fire department but that was just the way it was like i say there was no counseling or PTSD treatment or anything like that. Uh, after 9-11, we recognized that I mean, we had people telling us, you're going to have dozens of suicides uh, 
and you better do something to prevent it. You better have some counseling for those, you know, survivors. And the department took that very seriously. By that time, we already had a an in-house counseling unit that did de- do some PTSD uh, training or debriefing in the field, but it was, you know, a very small unit meant for handling one routine line of duty death not hundreds of line of duty deaths now and every firehouse in the city being affected so the department took a very proactive stance they recruited a no a large number of outside counselors every firehouse that lost a firefighter was basically given a full-time counselor many of whom you know spent weeks in the firehouses uh, Constantly. I mean, some of them lived and slept there for weeks on end uh, so that they would be there with the people that needed to talk. Uh, I'm sure everybody has their own take on it. Uh, Some people react well to discussion of, you know, the tragedies and other people, they don't want to talk about it publicly. They need to talk with somebody who's been there and done that, not a psychologist who has no understanding of what we actually do. So uh, there has to be a mix of personnel involved. Uh, Like I said, we had a few of those people in-house, but not enough to go around to every firehouse. So we recruited a lot of retired guys. Uh, which helped tremendously also. Uh, Guys who had, again, been there and done that and had a great reputation. And when they came into your kitchen, you know, just started talking and chatting, uh, that went a long way. But everybody has to accept that, you know, this is unusual stress. Not everybody is supposed to see this. I I mean, I think of some of the things that uh, I ask people to do and to think that you asked them to do that and they did it and now come back to work and try to live like a normal life. And uh, nobody's supposed to be able to process that. It wasn't built into our brains to be able to just process that kind of tragedy. Speaking of the tragedy, you, you, you go from a high, uh, up-tempo firehouse that you find yourself when you first get hired and then you transition to the world of special operations i heard you talking on the um oh my god the on the best of the bravest podcast about being exposed to the world of the subways and then you know you obviously had the suicides and those kind of things and there was one story you told about an entrapped patient that you knew the moment that you freed them, they were then going to bleed out and die. So if you want to, if you wouldn't mind, expand on that a little bit. One of the things that I've struggled with, and again, not actively struggled, but I think it was the thing that hit me the hardest was the inability to save. As a paramedic, I'm taught if I do these compressions and this, um, you know, uh, defibrillation and give these drugs, then the person will be okay. And if I, you know, cut the B post and flap this down, then the person's going to be able to get out. And then you go on the job and you realize that you've been set up for a lot of 
uh, failure because a small percentage of those people actually, in my career, a full cardiac arrest, I didn't save one in 14 years. So that really, <laughs> I'm the black cloud when it comes to the statistics. So how talk to me about any calls that kind of maybe even haunt you with that inability to save, contrary to that um, beautiful rescue that we see adorn, you know, the firehouse and some of these other publications that we love. I don't have any survivor guilt. I don't have any uh, guilt over being unable to save anybody. I mean, I regret not being there in time in cases. Like you say, I mean, the subway incidents, uh, particularly the space case, uh, you get somebody that's trapped between the subway platform and the car. And everything from the waist down is just eviscerated the body can't dump out yet because it's being compressed between the car and the platform. But we know, we've seen this before, that the moment you push that car away and release the pressure that's holding the bottom of their body together, they're going to die. Uh, And in one case, I wasn't actually the guy doing the movement, but I was there. And uh, the, uh, I believe it was a police officer or a medic, I'm not sure which, uh, said, Guy, you know, there's nothing we can do. This is going to happen. And it was in the early days of cell phones. And he asked him if he wanted to make a phone call. And the guy called his family and told them that he loved them and he's going to die. And that's, you know, it's a tough, tough thing to accept it. You know, there's nothing we can do. I mean, the medic said, yeah, we've got two lines running to him. The moment we take that pressure away, the whole bottom of his body is wide open. It's just going to dump out onto the tracks. And, you know, that's there's nothing we can do about that. If you've done your best when you go to a fire and you grab a kid or, you know, grab an adult and you pull them out, and they're burned, and you're doing mouth-to-mouth on them, you're doing everything you possibly can, that's out of your hands. You know, you do every single thing that you possibly can, and then they die. I go out of there with a clean conscience. I did my best, and that's all I possibly can do. If I, if I was, you know, unable to do my job, then it's on me. If I was unable because I wasn't physically fit enough or I wasn't, I was drunk or I was drugged or some other issue and I wasn't able to do my job the way I should be able to, then you should have some guilt. You should have a lot of guilt because you're there to do your best and you got to be prepared to do your best. Now, your best, again, has physical limitations. I mean, I was about six foot one and 200 pounds, I couldn't lift a six foot four, 300 pound person by myself. Couldn't lift them over the windowsill. That's a physical limitation that I can't overcome, even though the fact I'm in the best shape I could be. Uh, Might, you know, a six foot six, 300 pound firefighter who works out all day been able to lift them over the windowsill? Maybe, but I couldn't be that person. So, I can only be the best that I can be. And that's the way every firefighter, every first responder ought to be thinking. You know, I'm doing the best that I possibly can. 
there are going to be circumstances that are out of our control, that are just beyond our ability to make that difference. But it ain't going to be because I didn't do my job. Well, speaking of that, I think there's a mental health element to that as well. I mean, it's unacceptable that we lose someone because we weren't prepared for that particular event. But I think also flipping the mirror around, there's because I, I agree 100% with you. I've lost a lot of people, but I trained diligently. I was always taking extra classes. I've always stayed in great shape. So was I the absolute best? Of course not. There were still corners and areas that I could have done a lot better, but I certainly that was my philosophy was to be better every single day. So that gave me some solace in the fact that, you know, this code went really well, but this 28-year-old had a blood vessel explode in their brain. There was no way of saving them. But you're that person now that doesn't make it to the 10th floor because you're untrained or you've forgot to check your you know your coupling and now your tank is pissing everywhere and half your tank is gone whatever it is that's unacceptable that also carries a mental health thing because that will haunt these people so it's like another layer to that understand your training is imagine if someone's family died and you knew that they did because you hadn't trained that should haunt you when you're training that should be a a constant thing in your mind to drive you to train more absolutely that's when you hold your hand up to take that oath of office, whether it's career or volunteer, when you say, I want to be the firefighter who the public is going to depend on, that's what you're setting yourself up for. And you have to be prepared for it. So you spent a lot of time in, in very, very busy companies, you know, initially the, the regular companies and then the special, special operations side. A lot of firefighters in the country, and I've seen you know, both spectrums, I've been in very, very busy companies and then some places when it came to fire, my last department barely ever saw any. They protected a theme park, so it was very well sprinkled, and that's a good thing. Not for an yeah. avid firefighter, but it's a good thing for the people in the buildings. Um, but there are a lot of people, we just don't get as many fires anymore. It is a truth. No matter how many times you post about things on Instagram, the reality is if you're not in some of these areas in the States that burn a lot, if you're not in Detroit chasing, you know, derelict buildings being burnt again and again and again. The great news is that our buildings are getting safer. So what is your philosophy on the average American firefighter who knows in their heart of hearts they're not going to see as many fires as the 80s, for example, that philosophy to train for whatever's going to happen next? And sadly, in our profession, obviously, you add new things like school shootings and those kind of things. It's still your obligation. I, people talk about the war years in the FDNY. And I say, what about the pre-war years? What about the 1950s? We're still doing more fire duty than they did in 1950 in New York City. They were still great firefighters. There were some excellent, excellent officers who developed tactics that we use today. Why? Not because they were doing it 10 times a night, but because it was the right thing to do. They were professionals. They were trying to be the best they could possibly be. And I don't care how much work you're doing. If you're not studying and working working hard at it, you're not going to be as good as you could be, which is you're letting yourself down. You're letting the public down. Being, you know, busy, like you say, doing 10 fires a night. Okay. If you're doing the same thing over and over and over again, and you're not learning from it and not you know, adapting to the change 
around you, you're setting yourself up for failure. Uh, just because we did something 10 times and it worked doesn't mean it's the thing to do on the 11th fire. So we have to be professionals about it, whether you're getting paid or not. you got to be a student of the fire service. you got to learn your job, and you owe it, again, to yourself, to your family, and the community around you and the fellow firefighters around you to be that good. One of my favorite conversations on here, and we've remained friends since, is with Al Benjamin. Um, and to me, if someone says, hey, do you have a, you know, out of 800 episodes now, do you have one that, that talks about being a senior man? That's the one I always send. I never rose above the rank of firefighter, partly because I moved back and forth. And secondly, if I'm completely honest, I adored the job so much I wasn't ready to to do, you know, behind the steering wheel or even the, the front seat. Um there in again in a lot of departments there is a rush to promote and i understand you know if you're not earning very much money and you know there's there's going to be a lot of growth and you don't maybe want to be under some of the people that are behind you there's many of these areas that are driving you know obviously the 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 core the nucleus should be that you're ready for that next level and you want to challenge yourself but i think the the kind of concept of the senior firefighter is a very very important one for people to understand certainly before you rise the ranks or for some people that don't even like i i honestly can't can't envision myself anything other than chomping at the bit wanting to get into the fire so what is your perspective you rose through your ranks very high yourself but what is your perspective of the senior man philosophy and and how can we kind of maintain that um that history and empower some people to just be phenomenal at their job at that rank well again part of it is they you know we go back to maslow's hierarchy of needs they have to have the basic salary that they can survive on firefighter salary if a firefighter can't survive put food on the table for his family he has to do something else either you know take a side job which now detracts them from it or uh, get promoted within the department so that is a given i mean firefighter pay scales have to reflect the ability to do the job and be able to uh, provide for their families but within the organization there are people who really i mean don't want to be fire uh, don't want to be bosses they don't want the responsibility of, of being a boss and that's great there are great firefighters I, I mean senior guys that broke me in who never got promoted and were just great great firefighters and i always appreciate them for it uh, guys like jimmy Carney in 69 engine was i mean amazing person uh, Mike Leamy and Richie Spatafora and 111 Truck. I mean, great, great people. Uh, the job can't survive without them. But we also do need good leaders. And uh, from, in my case, I was blessed to work with and for some spectacular leaders. And I always wanted to be just like them. I said, if this is this is the best firefighter I ever know. And I want to be just like him when I grow up one day. And that's what I work towards. We also have the negative mentors. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned that you don't want to get passed up by some of these people. I didn't want to be forced to work with or for some of these people as an underling. Uh, 
there was a boss who I I remember the day I said, I'm going to study. I'm going to get promoted because I don't want that idiot being my boss. You know, I, I if, if he can be a lieutenant, I damn sure can be a lot better lieutenant than this guy. So, you know, there are, there's that pressure as well. So it's not for everybody. I mean, like you said, you want to be chomping on the bit. The good part about being an officer in the FDNY, at least, is you are going to be chomping at the bit. You're going to be right alongside the nozzle team, or you're going to be right alongside your irons team. Uh, you know, you're not out in the street acting as a sector commander or anything like that. Uh, so you're at the tip of the spear. And that's reflected in our, you know, casualty statistics. Our lieutenants and captains, the line of duty deaths, almost on par with the number of firefighters killed because they're at the tip of the spear. That's a very powerful, you know, perspective there. I mean, I think that's the problem is a lot of the smaller departments. I say problem, it's not a problem, but just the different dynamic. That officer is probably going to be outside with a radio in their hand versus, as you said, I mean, a larger incident in, in one of the places that I work for, we would be going in with our officers, but smaller ones, they're sending us in and we do the work, which is, you know, what I love doing. So yeah. at that rank level, that's kind of taken us now to 9-11. Um, obviously, I'm skipping over decades of your career, but I want to get to certain areas that I haven't heard you talking about in other episodes that you've done. Talk to me about the preparation prior to 9-11 through, obviously, a special operations lens now, and then kind of walk me through what they, that day like was for you personally through your eyeballs. Well, the preparation prior to 9-11, uh, we thought we were in pretty good shape. We had had a lot of training and preparedness for terrorism. It was on our radar screen well before 9-11. We'd had numerous attacks in the city, thwarted attacks that the FBI and NYPD prevented. But we knew that terrorism was here to stay. You know, the 93 World Trade Center bombing was an eye-opener, but it wasn't the first. We've had bombings going back decades, into the 20s, you know. In the 60s, we had over 200 bombings in New York City. Uh, so we had prepared. We had created the squad companies, for example, uh, was our probably biggest pre-9-11 step. Uh we had created at that time seven, well, six new squad companies plus squad company one, gave them additional training and equipment to prepare for NBC warfare, chemical, biological, and radiological warfare. Because we knew, you know, this is never going away. We have to be prepared for it. We had our urban search and rescue task force, which is part of the FEMA system uh, that we have used in-house in New York City incidents. Uh, we were never prepared for the scope of the 9-11 attack. Uh, that morning, I was at home, uh, off duty, sleeping, actually, when the attack began. And uh, when I got to the scene, it was a uh, unimaginable moonscape. I, I had spent eight years of my life in and out of the World Trade Center while it was going up. Uh, 
You know, I knew every nook and cranny. I knew the back hallways that the public never got to see because I used to go through them when I was in a sprinkler business. Uh, after the complex was completed, that fall, the prior fall leading up to uh, 2000, January 1st of 2000, I spent every Friday afternoon from September through December 31st at the uh, number seven World Trade Center, which was the mayor's office of emergency management. Like I said, I knew that complex in and out and backwards. And when I got to the World Trade Center vicinity that morning, I couldn't make hide nor hair where I was. All my visual references were gone. If you were a New Yorker, you could orient yourself to the direction. Other people use the sun. Sun rises in the east, sets in the west. Well, if you're a New Yorker and you look from certain directions, the North Tower is the one with the antenna. That's going to be on the right side or it's going to be on the left side if you're on the south side. That was all gone. I had no frame of reference there. Uh, so our command structure was decimated that morning. You know, we lost the chief of department. We lost the senior assistant chief. Another assistant chief, Jerry Barber, was also lost. Uh, Ray Downey, we lost 21 chief officers that morning. And some of those who survived, everybody who had been at the Trade Center when the collapses occurred, they're in a post-traumatic stress moment. Uh, a lot of them have inhaled concrete dust and powdered people. And, you know, they're barely functioning physically. Uh, so it was an absolute true disaster for us. And we were trying to regroup. And a lot of it was done in ad hoc procedures. Uh, there was very little. The typical ICS structure. Yeah, we had assistant chiefs come in and take sectors and start breaking up. Uh, into areas, but getting a handle on the size and scope of the incident was, I mean, it took me days to get to see all the sides of the incident. You couldn't get through some of the areas. The streets were blocked. You had to go blocks away. You had to go out or along the waterfront to come back in on the other side of the uh, the damage area. The streets were literally three feet waist high in powdered pumice on the south side. You couldn't walk through them. You couldn't drive through them. It just couldn't be done. Uh, so it was an immense challenge to try to organize the continuing firefight. Uh, number seven World Trade Center had not collapsed yet. And that was... 50-story office building, and it's on fire. And I, a good friend of mine was Al Hay. Al Hay was a new deputy chief that morning, and he was given the responsibility to check on Seven World Trade Center and see how we're going to fight that fire. And he went inside. He met people who were in the building, and they said, there's no water in the standpipe system. The water mains out in the street had been uh, destroyed. 20-inch main had served the area, has severed, and now it's just spewing water everywhere. And there's no water in the standpipe system. 
we've got people coming in. We've got off-duty people coming in. We've got units from the outer boroughs coming in to fight the fires and, you know, try to do whatever rescues can be made. But if the off-duty people come in, most of them don't have any SCBA. They don't have any radios. You know, they might have their gear with them, bunker gear with them, maybe some hand tools, but that doesn't make an effective firefighting force. And if we send them up to the 30th or 40th floor of that building and we can't talk to them to get reports or to order them down, we're risking a lot more people's lives. So Al's recommendation to, I believe it was uh, Frank Fellini, Assistant Chief Frank Fellini that morning, says, uh, abandon this building, get everybody out of the building. It had been evacuated by civilians already. Uh, we did get several more civilians out who were still in the building when the collapse, the first collapse occurred. And then when the second collapse hit them, hit that building, uh, they were still in the building, but we got them out. But he says, we can't fight this fire. We don't have the resources to fight this fire. The building is in, it's moving. The building is clanging. There's steel clanging in that building. Uh, we can see it has heavy fire on multiple floors. This building's going to fall down too. And uh, that was a decision that they made. Okay, it isn't worth the risk. We're going we're gonna to send 300 more firefighters up into that building and have it possibly fall down as well. You know, that was a tough decision to make. Until that morning, nobody had ever had a high-rise building fall due to fire. And then we now had two within two hours. And we have another building that is built in similar fashion, not exactly the same, but similar fashion. And it's got a heavy fire on multiple floors. And the risk is we lose 300 more firefighters. Or you know what? We don't lose any firefighters and we lose a building that may be lost anyway. So they made that decision, and it was the right decision. But Al Hay said for that next five hours, all I did was pray, I hope this thing falls down. I hope this thing falls down. I hope this thing falls down. Because he didn't want to have to go to the chief of department in three weeks and say, why did you evacuate that building when it wasn't necessary? It wasn't, you know, it, it didn't fall down. So yeah, it was a... Uh, Decisions like that made based on training and basically gut feeling in some cases that this is the right thing to do. And people all around that perimeter in all kinds of ranks made those decisions that this is, okay, we're not going to win this. Get out of the way. Well, I think that's a powerful perspective for a lot of us. You know, sadly, you hear, you know, firefighters killed in a factory or you know or even a car explodes or something and i've seen the mistakes that i've made as a firefighter through my career you know i mean you think about a car it's a dumpster fire a class b dumpster fire is all it is you know and we get right up on it and we're gonna get you know things exploding taken out our knees or god forbid even exploding even more and now you have these electrical vehicles that are basically bombs on wheels and then, you know, also the moth to the flame and the structure fire. And there's a lot of chest beating and, you know, you never know if it's vacant. You know if it's tenable. You know, you know if it's structurally sound. So it's, we have to be able to pump the brakes. Most of the time, you should know. Yeah, yeah right. 
yeah so so you know of course if there's someone confirmed that they're trapped and you haven't seen fire blown out of every single window on every single floor then yeah you affect whatever rescue you can but there's many times where people are going in like you said it's it's basically concrete and wood and steel and you're not saving anything the same way as you're not saving anything in a car a car's gonna be written off the moment that it's on fire so sometimes that especially in my generation that desire to get in and be aggressive as a firefighter because it may be the first fire you've seen in a few weeks a few months even that we have to remember risk a little to save a little risk a lot to save a lot that is absolutely it's the heart of your job i mean you're not there to get yourself killed you're not there to get yourself even severely hurt your job is to do the best you can and save what can be saved. And if it's full of fire, it can't be saved. If people are in a room full of fire, they can't be saved. You know, I worked in, you know, busy areas with a lot of vacant buildings. And yeah, I had people, you know, come up to me. I'll never forget my first night tour where I got the outside vent assignment in Ladder 103. You know, I had. Ah, four years in the firehouse at that point, I had never been given the outside vent. I had been inside the irons can. I had been in the engine a couple of years. And now, okay, your job is the outside vent. And a guy comes up to me and says, there's people in there. Where? In that back room. Second floor, back room. There was nobody in there. He was just trying to get me to go into a vacant piece of shit building which i did and it was they were setting me up you know and it's just like they know the way to scam the system you want an ambulance to come right away even though you just broke your finger what do you say chest pain i'm having a chest pains you know how do you get a cop to come right away i need somebody to fix this guy who's you know yelling at me well you give a police officer needs assistance give a 1013 and the cops are going to come swarming. You want to get firemen to go someplace? Yeah, tell them there's people in there. And there are people that do that just to scam us. And you have to keep that thought in mind. You know, in my experience, you know when it's the real thing. You know when there are really people trapped. Uh, you got to use some judgment there. I mean, I've gone into vacant buildings that, you know, we shouldn't have been in because there might be somebody in there. And we've had guys hurt and killed in those vacant piece of shit buildings. And I uh, mean, one case I remember, you know, most dramatically, uh, there was a battalion chief in the 4-4 battalion, Frank Talamundo. And uh, I had a fire with Frank the night before. I had uh, a vacant building and it was a piece of crap vacant you know the roof had been burned off already every window was already vented and we went to go in and he said absolutely not stay outside here and uh, we hit it with the towel ladder multiple times and at some point it got there was fire in between the roof and the top floor ceiling behind the front brick wall that we just couldn't hit no matter how many times we repositioned we just could not finish that and he said, all right, go ahead, 90, take your line in there and just finish that off. You know, be careful. It's a little bit of fire now, but this building's had multiple fires, piece of shit. We really don't want to go in there. But other 
than finishing it off with the one line, we'll be here for hours, you know. So we're going to be very careful about that. And he let the nozzle man and the officer go in, and I was supposed to be the backup man. And he said, no, get down off the porch, get down out of here. I don't want anybody else going in this thing. And then he went up to supervise the operation and feed hose where I would have been feeding hose. The next night, they had another vacant building, fire over on Osborne Street, and there were squatters trapped. This is a chief that had been there and done that for 20 years, you know, been everywhere, knows all about this, knows about vacant buildings. And he ordered the engine, get out, get out now. And the engine said, chief, we got people trapped here. He says, I know, we can't save them. Get out now. And they didn't come out. And he went in to get them, to pull them out. And when the building came down, he got killed. The civilians died anyway. They, they were not going to be able to be saved. He knew that they couldn't be saved. And the engine company got banged up bad. A lot of those guys got put out of a job on, you know, bad, bad injuries. But they didn't trust his judgment enough. And I, God almighty, he's got the credibility. You got to trust the man, you know. Actually, I had a fire when I was uh, the staff chief in the same neighborhood. And uh, it was vacant. Well, no, it was partially occupied. It was actually, you know, it was a vacant, but there were squatters living there. But the company gets in and they start making a push with the hand line. And the captain of the truck says, ah, I don't like this. You know, primary search is negative. Where they told us it might be people. Let's hit it with the towel ladder. And one of the firefighters says, ah, we don't need that. You know, give us 10 more minutes. And the chief said, the battalion chief said, uh, no, no, come on out now. And the guy gave the chief a ration of crap. And uh, I happened to be on scene and overheard that comment. I lost it. I said, get out now. Right here. Every one of you. I line up in front of the building here. Who are you to make that kind of call? That's what he's for. He's the one ultimately responsible. Do any of you know who Frank Tolomundo was? These are the companies in that same house. And, I said, oh, man, I, I was so pissed. I was, you know, that's what your bosses get the big bucks for. They got to make that hard, hard choice. They're not doing it because they like to. They're doing it to save your life. I, I, I had it a couple of times like that. That just drove me crazy. You know? They say, when you see a guy like Frank, you know, who paid the ultimate price. Yeah, no, exactly. And this is why we need to hear these voices. You know, I mean, as we said, sadly, it takes tragedy a lot of time for us to change things. And there's this kind of, uh, you know, tongue-in-cheek's not even the right word but this snide comment of oh they hit it hard from the yard like there's this heroism to running into everybody same with the clean cab like there's this mythology that you're going to leap from the cab dart straight into the building and if you had to take the time to put your pack on first then a thousand people are going to die well to me you know if you're going to get out because i was a tillerman for a while my pack was down at the bottom so i had to get out and then put my pack on and it took about eight seconds 
Meanwhile, the LT is actually, or captain, is doing a size up because I'm a fireman. I'm not leaping off into anywhere. My officer is going to tell me, here's what I want you to do with your partner. You know, we're going to force the door. We're going to go to the Charlie side. We're going to go on the roof, whatever it is. So you have time. So it seems to be a lot of the, the younger firefighters, and I'm not demonizing a generation, but, you know, when you have some of these departments that have such a high turnover, a lot of the ones I've worked for, I think 50% of the department had five years or less. So if we allow this kind of myth, this this culture to seep in, just as you've illustrated, you get this, this kind of ignorance, this unfounded mythology that sends young men and women into fires that never come out. Yeah, and that's not our, not our goal, not our job. I mean, you know, kind of like... Uh, I think it was George Patton said, your job is not to die, you know, fighting the enemy. Your job is to make the enemy die. For their country. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I want to just hit one one point before we kind of move through the 9-11 to, um, you know, modern day and um, your, your interesting perspective on terrorism now. You had this background in fire prevention. You literally watched this building erected you have all these different so-called, whether it's actually philosophies or ideas from people that are educated on the matter, and then you have the fringe conspiracy theories as well. We talk, you know, we hear about the fire cladding not being done and all these things. Just not loading the question at all, because I have, you know, all I saw was that a plane flew into a building and then the building collapsed, which made perfect sense to me. But what is your perspective on what happened and the ability of those those buildings to withstand or not withstand being hit by a 747? Well, I go back again to the late 60s when they were designed. Uh, I had copies of the original drawing. I said my first job was uh, 1973. It was uh, maybe February or March of 1973. I get down to the World Trade Center. And I'm going to run a high-pressure eight-inch standpipe line. And I get there with drawings that were built in 1966. They were uh, blueprints uh, designed in 1966. And there is a cutout in the steel beam that runs the exact path of my pipe that I have to run it. I don't have to design it. This was done in 1966 and the steel which was made two years prior the cuts were in the exact location for me to put this pipe in there those engineers structural engineers designed that building that entire complex and at the time they the biggest building the biggest airplane in the world was a 707 and they said Uh, This building is meant to take the impact of a Boeing 707. And it did. They stood up to a plane bigger than a 707. The planes that struck the two towers were much larger than a 707. And they took that impact. They forgot about the fireball. The buildings were built. It was a very unique design, and the architect won all kinds of awards. The exterior steel walls were a load-bearing structure. The building could not have been built using typical uh, brick walls or masonry walls. 
it had to be an exterior load-bearing wall to provide that large open floor spaces that they love. Uh, there are no you know, columns out in the office spaces. It was the exterior wall and then the interior core where the main columns were located. The fireproofing, I have pictures, again, in my time frame, I have pictures of those floors. They skimped on the fireproofing. The trusses, they had basic bar joist trusses like you would have on any strip mall supporting the floors. They sprayed the fireproofing on the bottom cord and the top cord and across the decking, except for the last 18 inches on the bottom. Because if you didn't spray that 18 inches on every truss in that building, thousands and tens of thousands of trusses, you saved 18 inches times 10,000, you saved $5,000 or whatever. They did not spray the fireproofing on the steel bearing wall on the inside, except in certain areas where the truss is connected to it. But what do we know about steel? When the fire vented out those windows, the outside of that steel had no fireproof cladding. So the outside of all this structural steel was exposed to the full temperature with no fireproof cladding. Uh, it was, we were lucky that it didn't fall down in prior years without an airplane hitting it. Uh, when those buildings were first built, the office floors were not sprinkled. Uh, the only things that were sprinkled with public assembly areas, like the windows on the World Restaurant and the observation deck on the two, the top floors of those buildings, the restaurants in the lower areas, but the office floors were never sprinkled when the buildings went up, and they had what are known as access stairs within the buildings, so you had open. Interior staircases, not fire retarded walls around them, no fire doors, so that if a fire started on a lower floor, it had access to at least three floors at once. So we were lucky we did not have a severe, you know, again, potentially deadly collapse in the prior years, 20, 30 years that it was up. So, yeah, they were built... They were never intended to be fire-resistant buildings. You know, when, uh, and I I used the uh, Trade Center attack as an example. It was possible to do it. There is a building today, it's called 90 West Street. It's a, I believe, 25-story, uh, 1908 high-rise, built in 1908. 25 stories high. It was hit by the South Tower when it collapsed. That major gash in it. It burned for 24 hours. We did not go near that building for 24 hours because it was surrounded in metal pipe and wood plank scaffolding. They were waterproofing the exterior. We thought that building was going, or at least the scaffolding was going to collapse. The building had been evacuated for the most part. Uh, there were a few people that did die in that building. They were in an elevator, I believe, uh, when the tower collapsed against it uh, and set the building on fire around them. 
we didn't have the resources. We didn't have the people to fight that fire. It was the same decision that was reached at number seven World Trade Center. But that building is still standing. You can build a fireproof high rise. You just can't build it cheaply enough to satisfy the you know greed of the real estate industry. You can't build 110 stories to be fire resistive and be, build it cheaply enough. And it's so many times in these conversations that the term false economy comes in. And by trying to save a little bit of money, and even like Grenfell in London, you know, they they cheaply clad the building. From what I understand, it's it's a poorer area adjacent to a very wealthy area, and they wanted it to look prettier. They put this, you know, petroleum laced cladding on it, and then after that, they have the audacity to to act like the London Fire Brigade was the reason why. It wasn't mitigated and lives were lost and, and it's disgusting. So even yeah. though it was as blatant and you could your description, which I haven't had it put to me that way before, makes so much sense with these two areas, certainly in the London one, within, you know, a, within a heartbeat, they've gone from heroes to villains again. And one of my guests, Danny Cotton, was the, the, the chief at the time, and she was vilified by the media and everyone else. And I've, I, as a firefighter across the Atlantic, who's originally from the UK, I was looking at it going, they did everything they could. And I've had firefighters from there too. But no one is looking at the people that put the cladding on and saying, you're the reason why those people died. Right. The building code, the people that authorized the building code changes. And we had a code in 1938 that required multiple staircases to be widely separated, the far opposite corners of the building, so that, God forbid, something bad happens, all of our staircases are not impacted by the same event. I could retreat to the far corner over here if the fire is in that corner. Uh, Well, in 1968, The real estate industry was fed up with that. It was costing them too much money to build buildings. And they lobbied and they changed the building code. And the 68 building code came in. And it still would not allow what the World Trade Center was built like in 68 when those buildings were going up. So the World Trade Center just ignored the New York City building code entirely because it was being directed by a bi-state agency that said, well, we're not subject to the New York City building code, Uh, just the way federal buildings exempt themselves from our our building codes. The fire chief at the time, John O'Hagan, fire commissioner and the chief, said this this building just is a death trap. It's not going to survive a work on fire. And he was proved right. Long before the attacks, I had a, uh, I was taking a lieutenant's promotion class. So it had to be 85, 86, somewhere in that era. And uh, a fellow named Mike Cronin. Mike Cronin had been my captain when I was a firefighter in Ladder 103. And he said that he was in a class, he was the instructor. He says, you know, compared the Empire State Building. The Empire State Building had a World War II bomber hit it on the 77th floor in 1945. It was only a third alarm fire. It was only third alarm fire. There were people trapped on the fire floor who stayed in an office on the remote side of the building 
and firefighters went up there and brought them down a staircase and they survived. No floor to floor fire extension. And he said, that's the way the building was designed. Now, if a modern high rise took that same hit, he said, and this is an 85, if a modern high rise ever takes that kind of a hit from an airplane, we'll find pieces of that high rise across the river in Queens at the time. And that's basically what happened at the World Trade Center. The debris ended up across the river. Not the actual building, but debris from the dust and the paper and so on. Well, firstly, I, I appreciate your perspective on this. I mean, there's so many things to take away from that. Another thing that I think was so powerful is is the multiple reports. And I've had so many people on here that were touched by 9-11, whether they were doing part of the Coast Guard evacuation on the back. I had Will Jimeno, who was one of the two Port Authority officers that was rescued. Um, but the, that sense of post 9-11, they was referred to it as 9-12, where everyone came together. And, you know, you had synagogues and temples and, you know, all these different um, religions banding together, these different colors and creeds and, you know, sexualities because everyone was a New Yorker and or an American. So talk to me about that through your eyes and then the ripple effect of this because you see that and then you see, you know, the, the your uh, FDNY brothers and sisters fighting for cancer benefits almost losing them only a few short years ago, a stark contrast to the you know, initially post-9-11 era that we all romanticize about now. Yeah, you know, it's absolutely true, James. You're absolutely right. 9-12, you know, I remember, actually, I don't think it was the 12th. Maybe it was the 13th. I was getting a ride up the West Side Highway and you know, the checkpoints or at Canal Street, and once you got north of Canal Street, the sidewalks were lined with people, you know, waving flags, offering, you know, sandwiches, bottles of water, you're our heroes, it was, you know, it was so great. And I had actually, I was uh, staying, I, I didn't go home for weeks afterwards, I was staying up in Manhattan, Midtown Manhattan, and I had my fire department placard on the dashboard of the car and you know people left notes on the car under the windshield wiper you know how great you are and your heroes and all this and you know, it, it didn't last long i mean in some cases uh, we bought it on ourselves you know guys couldn't handle the adulation and they began to think that they you know i had a friend of mine richie fanning said uh, Never believe your own press releases. You know, uh, you're human, you know, but people put you up on that pedestal without understanding that we are human and we have failures. And, you know, people, we had an episode of uh, guys getting arrested for DWI and so on. And, you know, I don't know what caused them to do that, but, you know, you're still a person who has responsibilities. And uh, again, we had people who didn't like seeing us. There are jealous people out there who were jealous of firefighters at that point, who began to attack us in many ways. And we helped them. We gave them ammunition to help us, you know, be attacked. Uh, 
to see what happened today. I mean, thankfully, it lasted long enough for us to capitalize on that public adulation. Uh, we got, you know, things like the UASI grants. We got the tons and tons of federal money. And more importantly, the research that led to what we understand today. Uh, we had been trying for years and years to get research into firefighting tactics. I mean, UL Underwriters Labs had their fire test building for you know decades. They were doing research on like construction assemblies. They didn't do anything toward firefighting tactics or firefighter safety and survival until after 9-11. Like I said, the money that the grants got got every major metropolitan area in the United States uh, has played a tremendous role in disaster planning. You know, the, excuse me, the USAW task forces that existed before 9-11, some of them did not have the tool and equipment cash. They were task forces in name only because you had to be deployed for the feds to buy your tools. So some of those task forces only got, you know, the real tool capabilities after the Pentagon and Shanksville and the World Trade Center attacks because they were then able to be deployed. And now that system has grown so robust, they're out, you know, every hurricane season, they're put in place beforehand. Uh, the I think of the response to the pandemic, you know, firefighters did not understand decontamination for the most part, real technical decontamination until after the terrorist attacks of that fall, October, the anthrax letters, you know, that bombarded the country, uh, that we got a lot of capabilities out of that that came back to help during the pandemic in 2020 uh, because fire departments had been educated and had gotten equipment and gotten things like, you know, uh, pappers and so on. So it helped in the long term, even though, yeah, it, the firefighter is no longer the hero that was, you know, on the pedestal of 2001. Now, the mental and physical health um, detriment from 9-11, if I'm not mistaken, sadly, I think we've actually lost more to post 9-11 illness than we have the 343 that you lost that day. So talk to me again through your eyes, you know, what is the support, if any, and if, if it's lacking, what do we need to do? How can we fix that to make sure that these families are taken care of? Well, within the fire department in New York City, we have a great support network. Our medical office going back into the 90s has been very very proactive we had dr kelly and dr present who were fire department medical officers we have a robust medical staff on the department uh, in addition to our ems medical response doctors but our health care for the firefighters improved dramatically in the 90s Prior to that, there was a, an issue where, you know, the medical office was seen as punishment. They weren't there to help 
treat firefighters. They were there to make sure you weren't malingering. Uh, that changed, like I say, radically in the 80s and under Dr. Kelly's supervision, particularly, and then continued by Dr. Prezant. It's just been tremendous. Uh, they knew what was going to happen. Going back to 1975, the uh, we had a fire in Lower Manhattan, the uh, post uh, the telephone company fire in Lower Manhattan, and I believe there were 700 firefighters that responded to that event over a period of days, burned burned for days. Uh, out of the 700, I want to say 450, 500 have had cancer or died of cancer and that their medical folder was given a red stripe and it was called the red stripe of death. If you went to that fire, your folder was marked with this red stripe to highlight to the medical officer who pulled pulled your file that, wait a minute, this guy's at high risk of cancer. Uh, they, Dr. Kelly and Prezant, wanted to avoid that after 9-11, they you know, started a very robust uh, medical program, which continues to this day. I'm retired 15 years, and I am still I'm scheduled for my World Trade Center medical uh, in the fall here. And they screen you for cancer. They screen you for all the known issues. And they have a tracking system that is, like I say, Pretty, pretty robust in that if you have something that, wait a minute, they haven't seen that before and it's not uh, normal for the general public, well, okay, they they start tracking. We've identified new, new cancers that they can now correlate to your exposure at the World Trade Center. Uh, will that save you? No. You know, if you've got something that's going to kill you, uh, knowing about it doesn't save you, but what it does is it allows your family to receive World Trade Center benefits uh, so your health care is covered. You don't have to worry about, like right now, what's going on with city employees. They're trying to cut the retiree benefits. Well, if your injury is shown to be World Trade Center related, you don't have to worry about that. Your medical care is going to be covered. So. I can't badmouth the FDNY for that. I tell you what, I you know, I would prefer that nobody got sick, but that ain't going to happen. You know, we were operating in places, and you know, guys say, "Well, why didn't you just wear a mask? Why didn't you wear the respirator?" Well, in the first few days, we didn't have the respirators. We didn't have them to go around. Uh, we wore dust masks, but that wasn't adequate. Uh, I remember vividly being up on top of the North Tower, and we were working to free, you know, firefighters' bodies that are trapped. And they were using sawzall, battery-operated tools, left and right, and throwing the batteries, you know, just, I, I can't be bothered taking it down and bringing it down to get charged. Give me another one. Just give me another one. And they threw the other one over here. And the next day we went back up there and the fire overnight had burned up all these lithium ion batteries. And now we have guys working in that same area again, 
And this is bad stuff for you, you know. But they felt that they had to be there. We had to be there. I'm sorry. We had to be there. And to wear the respirator, you couldn't see with the mask of the respirator coming out, blocking your vision down. It was more hazardous to wear the respirator because you might fall into this cliff or off this abyss uh, because you can't see where you're stepping. So guys made judgment calls based on emotion in some cases because these are they're, they're finding firefighters. They've got guys there that they want to bring home. And, you know, to their own detriment, they risk their health. And, yeah, you know, some of us are paying a price. Now, you mentioned, obviously, the FDNY was taking care of their own. It seemed like it was the city that was the one that was pushing back against supporting some of the men and women that were sick and, and ultimately their families when they passed away. Well, I don't know if it was the city. It was, I believe, a lot of it came from the federal government, the resistance of the federal government to, you know, fund. Uh, you know, it's a very broad category. I know that there were people who came there, posed for pictures outside, and went back, and now they filed claims with the federal government and collected half a million dollars or more. You know, they weren't exposed any more than any resident of Chinatown was. You know, they didn't spend weeks digging through the debris. But uh, so the, the government, I'm sure, is, uh, you know, do we write a blank check to everybody who was in New York City that day? How about the people in New Jersey who were downwind when the wind, you know, blew from the east? Did they all get a check, too? You know, so it's it's a tough position for anybody to be in. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to you know what you're doing now, but obviously there's a transition out prior to that. That is another chapter in a first responder's life that can be somewhat flawless if they've built new tribes and communities to transition into, but can be very jarring for, I think, most of us. You have that tribe, you have that sense of purpose, you have the identity, I am a firefighter, I am a paramedic, and then your ID doesn't work anymore, the bay door comes down behind you, and now you're not. So what, what was your perspective? And then, you know, through your lens, have you seen that kind of transition as an area that some people do struggle, that you've seen with your own eyes? Yeah, absolutely. It's very traumatic. Uh, depending on how you go out, that has an impact. If you, you know, in our city, you have a mandatory retirement age at 65. If you're, you know, working and you're 64 years old, you know it's coming to an end. And you have an end date. You know exactly, I can't go past this date. And that's hard to accept, but what I found harder is when you are suddenly injured and now told, you know, okay, your 13-year plan that you had in front of you, that's out the window now, and now you are done. And that's what happened to me. I had planned to work until I was 65, and uh, Dr. Kelly says, no, you can't go to fires anymore. And uh, that's that was a problem. And the first year, it doesn't sink in. You know, you go off on vacation and you think, okay, 
I'll be back. I'll be back. And for so many people that I've talked to, it takes a year. And then all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, I'm not just on vacation. This is forever. And it hit me very hard. Uh, I had been associated with what we call the Wind Driven Fires Project since I was a captain uh, in 1995 was the first time we had a firefighter death friend, a guy I had just met. I had just met him two days, three days earlier, a guy named Jimmy Williams. And uh, he was killed in the first wind-driven high-rise fire. In 98, we lost three more. And I was actually taken out of Rescue One and assigned to the line of duty death investigation and worked on a high-rise task force developing recommendations on how we're going to prevent this. Later on, worked into things like the fire window blanket, the high-rise curtain, the floor below nozzle. Those are all things that I worked on, developed, and eventually put into play. And in uh, 2008, we in New York City were doing some uh, UL and NIST test burns on Governor's Island. And uh, it was all in research. We're going to research all these things. We're going to test all these concepts that we've been using for the last 10 years or more. But now we're going to document it with scientific research. And they gave me about 15 minutes. We had people from all over the United States and uh, some parts of Canada and Europe uh, at this symposium and were presenting, okay, this is the background. This is what happened. This is how we got to this stage. And that, that was my component. And I said, and we had this fire and we had that fire. And, and then I said, and I remember it very clearly, I said, and that's why we are doing these burns. And I realized we're not doing these burns. They're doing these burns. It's not we anymore. And I couldn't finish the sentence. I couldn't finish the rest of my speech. It hit me that hard. But yeah, you're not part of it anymore. So what did you do to navigate that next part? Because it seems like some of the commonalities in these conversations, refinding that purpose, because I think that we, we're kind of tricked in believing that the only way we can serve is wearing the uniform. And you forget that that service was in your heart before you put the uniform on. And there are a thousand different ways to serve once you transition out as well. So what was your kind of road to overcoming that initial kind of punch in the throat a year in? Well, I had a few things, uh, irons in the fire, if you will. I had been teaching for 30 years prior to that point, various seminars at the, for example, the FDIC Fire Department Instructors Conference, Firehouse Magazine. Uh, I had several books written at that point already, and I had a great family support network. So I kept doing those issues. People still called and wanted my opinion. People asked me to come and teach. And I kept up with that. Uh, Again, I had a family that very supportive. uh, And I had a new home, if you will, up in the Adirondacks. We had bought the house up in upstate New York 
in 2005 and uh, I was doing a gut renovation on it and that became my emotional and my physical therapy. Uh, I had a, a very serious line of duty injuries, which is why I couldn't go to fires anymore. And I was a uh, bad, bad neck injury. Uh, and that became my physical therapy. And I had my wife uh, was my support network and we worked side by side uh, and kept me going. So you found yourself becoming an expert um, witness and working in the kind of domestic terrorism, excuse me, the, the terrorism and um, prevention and preparation area. I want to get to the actual terrorism side in a minute, but before I do, you've got a very unique perspective. What is your observation and what are your kind of philosophies behind how we address this violence that we're seeing in our schools the last three decades? Oh, God. I I wish I knew the answer to that, James. I wish I knew the answer. I was at my uh, grandson. I have three grand. Well, I have five grandsons now. One granddaughter. Uh, I was at a show the other day with them. Uh, I went to pick them up after school, and there's a security guard in the lot. But we still have people doing stupid things. I mean, security is. This is a reality, the world we live in today. There are people that can, there's evil in this world, and we're not going to prevent that evil. So we have to be able to separate the evil from the good, whether it's closing and locking doors, you know, whether it's ID checks, uh, separate the evil from the good, and you need sheepdogs, you know. The sheep, there's wolves and then sheep dogs and we need them uh, so i wish i knew the answer to you know school shootings i to me i think a large part of it is a mental health issue and i think almost every one of them have been identified as having mental health issues before the event well we have to get the people who know these people to say something Okay, yeah, I, I get it. That's your child. You don't want to see your child being demonized. But if you think he's demonized now, wait until he's killed somebody else's kid. And then they're going to be demonized forever. You know, can you get the mental health treatment? Yeah, I, I don't know the answer. Again, I wish I did. I don't. Yeah, I just know what doesn't work is that the moment there's a school shooting, you divide into pro-gun and anti-gun lobbies, and then you just argue for two days and then forget it ever happened. Yeah, no, that doesn't fix a thing. Absolutely not. Well, with that, we had this horrendous attack on our own soil just over 20 years ago. Um, you know, we had a pandemic sweep through, you know, three short years ago, of which, in my opinion, we didn't take away any of the lessons, whether it was the one that Mother Nature was showing us or whether it was the fact that we need to be mentally and physically healthier as a species to be able to fend off whatever comes our way. And it's it's sadly very easy. I think it's behind, you know, the, the, as we said, the layoffs and the station clo closures, the moment that amnesia sets in again we're good. And this can happen even in departments. Where I used to work the last time, the pulse shooter came to my first due. 
and he and it was Disney Springs I can say it because it's all public and thank god there was such a large police presence I think it was shift change he packed up and went up to the club and not thank god for those poor people in that club but that was swept under the rug as a member of that department I came back from a vacation I was on at the time and basically was told nothing it didn't happen you know and it was completely ignored so I think the other way if it hasn't happened, then if you're a you know a gambler, that means that the odds of hitting that number are getting higher and higher and higher with each throw of the dice. So, with this audience of first responders on this podcast, you know what are some of the the cautions? What is, what are some of the the knowledge that you get to see that the average person in uniform doesn't of of us that can remind us of our vigilance as a responder individually and as a department? Well. Again, you can't let your guard down for one second. You know, we, we've been saying this for 30 years or more. The terrorist only has to get lucky once. You know, the good guys have to be 100%, 100% of the time. And that's almost an unrealistic burden. I mean, again, sheepdogs. Why did he not pick Disney Springs? Sheepdogs. You know, law enforcement's there. That is an essential part of civilization. That, you know, thin blue line flag, you know, a lot of people are offended by it, but it is reality. Without law enforcement, we don't have a society. We have chaos. We have laws for a reason because we've tried living without laws for eons and it didn't work. You know, we had barbarians sweeping the plains. Do we want to go back to that? I don't. I don't see the the rule of the, you know, the strongest being a good model. We have to agree with what is acceptable behavior. Here is the law. If you can't follow the law, well, we're going to remove you from society. You got to go someplace else. I don't care where it is, but you can't stay here. And that's, again, part of what we have to deal with. The mental health issues, I don't, we're never going to solve the mental health issues. There are so many, you know, whether it's religious hatred, you know, uh, there's so many phobias out there that people just, they hate somebody else. And it has become acceptable now to use violence to further a political agenda. And that's, that's not a civilized society. We don't want to go back. I mean, you want to go back to the old West? You know, I don't think so. It worked. Okay. We, you know, cattle rustlers were hung. Okay. I don't think you want to go back there. No, absolutely. Well, even with, with some of the evolving technologies, I just did an interview and I was on his podcast. He's been on mine, but Pete Wakefield has the firefighters podcast, which is the, the, the British one. Um, and he was talking about the the explosive ignition element of a lot of these electric vehicles now. How I forget what, what he was talking about specifically, but basically the potential of using vehicles as they did with the World Trade the first time. You know, it was just a, a regular bomb. 
that these vehicles now have the capacity to actually be a bomb in itself. And even things like that, I don't know, I'd never heard that before, but I haven't been wearing uniform for five years now. But this constant evolution of our knowledge, the latest, you know, it was fentanyl. Now there's uh, um, something in the anesthesia world that I think is being combined with fentanyl. So we're, we're jack of all trades, master of none. And that complacency that, well, it's never happened, therefore we're okay mentality drives me crazy because we're never going to master our craft. I just saw a video of Dizzy Gillespie talking about the trumpet, the absolute master through eyes, and he's like, no, it's it's a fight every time I pick it up. That's how we have to view the fire service. Absolutely. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that phrase and, you know, can't agree more that, uh, you know, just because it never happened before doesn't mean a damn thing, you know. Human beings are... So forgetful. I mean, I had one example I have is my sister-in-law, who I love dearly. Uh, there was a hurricane coming toward New York, and she lives in a very vulnerable area to hurricanes, flood-prone peninsula. And, she, you know, I've lived there 75 years. I'm not evacuating. It's never been that bad. I, I, it's never, ever, it's never, it's never, it's never. Well, it's never in your lifetime. And then it was, and she had to be rescued by an off-duty firefighter because she was being swept away in floodwaters. And, you know, your life experience is so short. All of us, no matter who we are, where we are, our life experience is so limited and so short. You can never say never to anything. So if it's possible, it will happen. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to your books and then throw some closing questions at you so I can let you go because we've been talking over two hours already. Um, you know, you've written several, obviously, the the uh, the renowned books within the fire service. But talk to me about working with giants. What made you write that and give people an overview so they know what to look for? Well, it's kind of a memoir. It's a tribute to, as the title implies, the giants that I was privileged to work with throughout my career, people who formed me. And the, the impetus came many years ago. I started writing things down going back into the early 90s. Uh, people would, you know, we'd come back from a, an event, a fire or explosion, a collapse, whatever it was, and, man, it would be spectacular. We did a great job. Somebody said, man, somebody ought to make a movie out of that. And, you know, somebody else would say, nobody outside the firehouse would believe it ever happened. You know, you couldn't make a movie out of that. And I said, it, it, but somebody should write it down. I go back to my father, you know, the stories that he told. I wish I had gotten him on tape to, you know, capture those stories. And not just him, you know, all these people who did such great things in their lives and there's nobody there to talk about it anymore. And I said, you know, I'm going to write it down. I'm going to write it down. And being the officer, I had to prepare the fire reports. And if there was something like a meritorious act where uh, a firefighter did something special and they were going to get a, you know, an official department recognition for it, I had to write that whole detail out with all 
the you know information who what when where and so on so i just kept a copy of a lot of those those reports and man if nothing else i want to be able to remember this 20 30 years from now man this was some spectacular event and i started to uh, say i kept a file of a lot of that i still have a lot of it i digitized it thank god <laughs> you know shrank my file cabinet but uh, having all that there it was a great resource and then i had a a another bad fall uh in 2019 i was up hiking in the adirondacks in uh, january and i had uh, a great day it was a beautiful winter day we had about two inches of fresh snowfall and we're hiking down my wife went with me for the first time usually i'm up on that mountain by myself all day long the week prior i was up there in the same location by myself clearing it's a snowmobile trail it's a bridge across the snowmobile trail that the week prior had we had gotten a flood that washed a bunch of brush and debris down and it had buried that bridge so i went back up there this day january 4th in order to make sure the trail was going to be open again and uh, it turned out there was no debris to be cleared so we had our couple of extra hours i was planning on spending three hours you know cutting debris and moving stuff out of the way and now we don't have to so we went exploring we went off on a new trail and on the way down i slipped on ice and came back flat on my back my neck hit a boulder and i was paralyzed from the neck down i couldn't move anything i could i was actually looking to my right I could see my right hand and I couldn't wiggle a finger. I couldn't move my hand, couldn't feel my toes, couldn't move anything. And uh, that's a very humbling experience. You know, I'm laying there. My wife, who is a, a nurse, Naren, uh, was with me. She you know, tried to move me. I said, you can do it. This is bad. You got to get help. And she had uh, had arm surgery a few months earlier, and now she has to drive the ATV back down the mountain and uh, get help over the ice. And it, it was bad. On the way up, I should have listened to her. You know, on the way up, there were patches of ice, and she said, "We should stop. We should turn around." And I said, "No, no, no. I can do this. Come on, we got this." And we did. We got up there. But now she has to drive it back down, call 911, wait for the first responders to get there, and then guide them back up. And their vehicles, they're in pickup trucks, and their vehicles won't go up over the ice. So now she takes two of them up, uh, the chief and the past chief of the volunteer fire department up there, Edinburgh. Uh, she brings them up, and the chief was uh, he was a sharp guy. As soon as he heard the 911 call reporting a person fall and paralyzed, he launched a light flight helicopter and he requested mutual aid for a neighboring department that had a tracked off road vehicle. And uh, they come up now. My wife has to go back down to get the EMS personnel up and bring them back up. 
So I am there laying on the ground, uh, looking up at the sky, unable to do anything for an hour and a half before they get back up. And you get to look at your life. And you think about where you want to be from here on. And uh, like I say, that was a tough couple of hours there. And I decided I did not want to die without getting that stuff published. So that's where it came from. Like I said, I had most of the uh, the stuff from the early years. I already had it all documented. It had the stories written. It had been written for many years. But I didn't want to take it to publishers after 9-11. I didn't want it to be seen as a, uh, you know, okay, cash in on 9-11 kind of book. But now it's a question of, okay, uh, either I do it now or it might never get published. And I, you know, I say there's so many great people who made me what I am today that I wanted to make that story get told. Well, again, thank you for that story because I'm sure people were going to buy the book before, but they're sure as hell going to buy it now because, I mean, that's just, you know, that shows the power and even the emotion that's that's emerged through this conversation. That's that, you know, the the, the power of what we do and, you know, some of the things that we carry out as well. Now, you talk about lying there, obviously having paralysis. Now, you know, we're sitting here. I'm assuming there's been a, a growth again from that. You're waving your arms at me. So walk me through that. I mean, you, we we know how crippling it is. And I had this. I had a, a pretty bad back injury in the fire service. And then I had knee surgery twice. Um, and, you know, you, you've done... You've used your body as your tool for so many years, not just to, to work like a carpenter or a plumber, but to actually facilitate rescues and save lives. Now you're lying here staring at the sky. What was that journey for you physically and what was it like mentally? Well, it gets even worse because in all my career, I can say that I never got anybody hurt except one guy who broke his nose uh, I never was responsible for having any of my people injured. And that day, one of the responders, the first two guys up there, he slipped on the ice, a friend of mine, John Olmstead, and he broke his arm. So now I'm responsible for his injury as well. And that was like, oh, my God, I, you know, John, I didn't want you to get hurt, man. I, you know, and he took it, you know. He was out of work for months. You know, he worked for the local town, but now he can't work. And uh, I felt so badly about that. So that, and that happened, you know, early on when he got there. So they still had to package me and treat me. And I go down the mountain now thinking I'm paralyzed. And I contributed to somebody else's injury. I didn't know how bad he was. Turns out it was, you know, broken arm badly enough, but, you know, not a life-threatening injury, thank God. But uh, going down that mountain was a, uh, like I say, a scary ride. And uh, when I got to the LZ that they had set up, uh, the life flight nurse grabs me and uh, says, move this toe. I said, guy, I've been trying to move for the last two hours, I can't move. 
He said, no, no, okay, really concentrate, just the right big toe. Just wiggle that white, right big toe. And I concentrated, and sure enough, it wiggled. And he says, that's it. Okay, you're going to be okay. Know that now. The spinal cord is not cut. You're going to be okay. And he knew what it was. He had seen it before. It's called central cord syndrome. When you fall, and I had a very, I was blessed. I was so lucky. My first fall back in 2005 at work, that I had to retire from that fall, they ended up doing a trench cut down the back of my neck from C3 to C7. Went inside, roto-rooted out a bunch of crap, and sold me back up without putting the roof boards back on. That's how I explained it to firefighters. There's no bone across the back of my neck from C3 to C7. So when I fell this time, the spinal cord was able to flex. It compresses the fluid out of the spinal cord, which means you can't send any messages. But as long as the cord was not cut, it will eventually get fluid back in it and you will gain your function back again. I did not know that. I did not know that until he, you know, recognized it. And uh, when I got to Albany Med, the surgeons there looked at the whole thing, x-rays and MRIs and all that, and says, you are one lucky boy. If you had had the normal spinal cord with the bone on the back there, it probably would have been cut, and you'd be dead by now. So I feel that I am I, – I, people ask how I am all the time, and I say I am walking and talking and thankful for it, and I mean that. So it's been a blessed journey. It has its challenges. Everybody has their challenges. But uh, it took me about a year to recuperate from that injury. But I'm pretty good now. I have my my back has its own challenges. But uh, so does everybody else. That's amazing, though. I had a, a, a neighbor who was from Fairfax. And he ended, I think he retired as a BC, never got her on the job. And then when he's my neighbor, he's weed whacking, catches a piece of mulch and takes out one of his eyes. So this is the, this is the irony sometimes is that, you know, we, we're hurt or not badly hurt when we're on the job and then life happens. And like you said, it's never happened before. So I should be good. You know, you're not wearing your eye protection or you're walking on the slippery surface. And sadly, that's the irony of life is all it takes is that one moment that one lapse and now yeah, you're in a totally you don't know different... how fast your life can change absolutely well i want to throw some quick questions uh closing questions at you before i let you go so we talked about your book well let's talk about the books in general where are the best places for get any to get any of the books well fire engineering books and videos publishes all of them uh, it's the you know working with giants is the newest the fire officers handbook of tactics and uh, fire department special operations they're all published by fire engineering and they're also all available at amazon they're usually uh, competitive with uh, fire engineering so any of the major booksellers like that online you can get them brilliant all right well then first closing question those are your books are there any books written by someone else that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion oh. today or completely unrelated. Absolutely. I am a voracious reader. I read 
a book every six to eight days. Uh, if you're going to be a fire officer, two books you absolutely must read. Vinnie Dunn's Collapse of Burning Buildings and Frank Brannigan's Building Construction for the Fire Service. Those are two absolute musts. Uh, you have to know building construction to be able to direct people into burning buildings. Uh, for leadership, a totally non-fire service book I love, well, many, many of them, but one is called The Mission, The Men, and Me. Uh, it's a book written by a colonel in the uh, U.S. Army Delta Force, and God, his name just went right through my mind. Uh, it's a, it's not a war book. He talks about his experiences in Delta Force. But if you read his book and where he says soldier or special operator, if you insert firefighter, you will understand exactly what he's saying and it will hit home to you there. Uh, his name is Peter Blaber. B-L-A-B-E-R. Uh, the Mission, The Men and Me. Uh, Turn the Ship Around is another book on leadership. It's a uh, written by a submarine commander who took over a, a low-functioning submarine and basically turned the ship around and made it one of the pride of the fleet. Uh, there are so many great books out there that... Uh, I just, you know, like I said, I can't get enough people's experiences uh, that they share them and learn from them. That's what we do. I, I love reading on the Kindle. I will say that. But I keep hard copies uh, on the shelf behind me. I have a couple that I bought. Uh, the Last Stand of Fox Company. It's a uh, Korean War story about the retreat from the Chosin Reservoir and uh, the heroism that those people displayed protecting the lives of tens of thousands of other Americans at great cost to their own lives. Uh, the Last Stand of the Tin Can Sailors by James Hornfisher. I mean, it's another one. It's about the attack on Taffy Taffy 3 uh, at the Battle of Lady Gulf, which uh, every time I read them, they send shivers up and down my spine. I mean, this is what people can do for others. And uh, I think Commander Evans, uh, I'm going to mess his quote up right now, but... Uh, they're under attack by the largest warships on the face of the earth. They're in tiny little destroyers. And he said, we're about to engage an enemy, uh, an overwhelming enemy from which survival cannot be expected. But we will do our duty. It's a motivator. So those are the kind of things that I read and I take the heart. Well, again, thank you. 
thank you for those. I mean, this is the this is what burns inside all of us, and you know, most of us will never know that true courage where you're truly faced with death, like you know, few have seen before. But there's so many commonalities, which is why I have so many military guests on here as well. I think if you wear a uniform, it's universal. Yeah, you're a caregiver. You're a person who cares for other people, as opposed to so many who are takers. So yeah, I'd say the world could use a whole lot more givers than takers. Absolutely. Well, speaking of, of emotion, what about films or documentaries? Any of those that you love? Oh, man. Yeah. I am, again, driven. Again, my father's service, my brothers, my brothers. I have two brothers who are veterans. Uh, you know, I, I go back to Saving Private Ryan. That is... Uh, a powerful, powerful story. It is fiction, but uh, it's, you know, there were people who did those kind of things. You know, the rangers who scaled those cliffs. Uh, you know, the Sullivan family who lost five sons. You know, those, there were people making sacrifices throughout history. And we should never forget those sacrifices. Absolutely not. I actually worked, I mean, I worked with and had him on the show, Dale Dye. He was the one that taught the actors how to be yeah. soldiers in these, in that, Band of Brothers, yeah. Platoon, etc. Yeah, I know Dale. I, I don't know him. I know of him. He's a, you know, another legendary figure. Marine Corps captain, you know, was, Forced to call down artillery on his own position. That's a, you know, as bad as it gets, man. Absolutely. Well, speaking of great people, Dale was my guest. Is there someone that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Hey, you know what? I don't know if he does it or would do it, but I would refer you to Reed Sawyer, R E I D. S-A-W-Y-E-R. He's a retired lieutenant colonel, special forces. He began as an enlisted man, uh, you know, sergeant, and then went to West Point. Uh, very instrumental in developing the counterterrorism center at West Point, which was a huge mentor to the FDNY. He taught a countering terrorism task uh, Counter, countering terrorism class for the FDNY for about 10 or 12 years after 9-11, got it off the ground, helped us uh, get our preparedness in many, many ways up there. I'm sure he's got a lot of experiences in, like I say, he knows the fire service as well as the military, and uh, he's a great, great person. Well, he sounds amazing. If you're able to help me connect, I'd definitely love to try at least. Yeah, I have his email. Uh, I have to check and see if I can get his uh, phone number or address, but I know I've got some contact with him. Beautiful. I haven't spoken to him in about two years, but uh, great, great, folk, great, great guy. He's, he's out in Illinois right now. He sounds amazing. So thank you. All right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you. 
What do you do to decompress these days? You talked about hiking in the Adirondacks. So anything else to add to that? Yeah, I do my daily Instagram post. Uh, that's one thing that I do to uh, kind of stay connected. I uh, do a training. It's a combination training and uh, some kinds, sometimes it's just a story. Daily post on Instagram at Chief Norman FDNY. And uh, it it gets a a lot of attention. A lot of people enjoy it. I've had great feedback from all spectrums of the fire service, uh, international as well as uh, within the U.S. Uh, like I say, it's a very eclectic kind of mix. Uh, sometimes it's uh, building construction topics. Sometimes it's uh, talking about a fire. Sometimes it's a lesson on foam or flammable liquids, uh, a collapse shore, how to do it, you know. So there's a little something for everybody there. Sometimes just talking about a hose load. So that keeps me busy, gets me up in the morning, gives me something to do. I usually do that post every morning. And uh, I have no idea what I'm going to do until I pick a picture. Well, that's the thing. Social media can be amazing if you curate it so that you put good things out and then the algorithm is like, okay, they're not interested on the clickbait. Because that's what I find. Mine is all, you know, firefighters and positive posts and people doing good things. And so when someone says, oh, you know, social media is so toxic, you're part of that. If you select things are good and select things in the fire service and fitness training and mental health you will actually have a very very positive nurturing social media feed on your phone yeah that's all i try to do you know i, I don't get involved in most uh, controversies i've learned a long time ago you know you said in your experience you went from east coast to west coast and back again you know when i first uh, at the fdic they had Chief Brumacini and uh, Tom Brennan started a head-to-head uh, -head after hours class, and they called it East versus West. And it was a New York City fire officer and Chief Brumacini from Phoenix. And uh, when Tommy passed away, they asked me to step in and take Tommy's place. And I said, I can't do this East versus West stuff. I've been around this country long enough to know that, uh, you know, there's a reason that everybody does what they do where they are. Buildings are different. Staffing is different. Climate is different. There are all kinds of different conditions that affect you. And if it works for you, it works. It doesn't have to work for me. You know, my situation is different than your situation. Find what works for you. And that's what I try to put out there. Uh, okay, here's something that I've done. This is one option. It's not the only way to do it. You know, there are times when this is probably the best way. It's the best way I've ever found, but you may have something better. So do that. It's a, I, I did a post last week on a, a foam adductor, a cutaway of a foam adductor and what the problems are with it. And I thought it was a very valuable post. I don't know how many people have ever seen the obstacles to getting foam going at an operation. It is a very complex, simple piece of equipment, but it's very, very prone to difficulties. And we see the difficulties all the time. That post only got like 190 likes. 
I don't know why. I do a post of a hose bed and it gets 800 likes. So I mean, I can't I can't tell you know what is going to be good, and I'm not even worried about it. Uh, like I said, I I post stuff that I think there's value to, and I I tell my wife I've said this all along. I've done training classes for six people and I've done classes with over a thousand in attendance. If the six people came just for that class and they got something out of that class, I felt good about that class. I know that sometimes in the audience of a thousand people, there are people who are not going to have any concept of what I'm talking about. They're not firefighters. They're just there to look at pictures and, they're not really the audience that I'm trying to reach. I want to educate firefighters. And if I reach six people and they get something out of it, I consider that a success. I agree 100%. The, uh, I had some weird massive explosion on my social media. And again, mine is very, you know, this this fire related, but it's just, it's, it's service, it's kindness, it's compassion. It's all the things that I think, you know, as you said, we're all humans. Some of us just happen to wear a uniform. But it, it got bigger and my wife was like, oh, that's really good. I'm like, it's good as long as all these people are actually wanting to see kindness, compassion. And if they don't, hopefully they'll leave again and the number will go down. That's fine. Because again, like and the, the Instagram algorithms are weird. You know, one minute you do a, you spend all this time, you write this post and it's like, just doesn't get seen. But even if you look at people with a huge following, you'll see the same thing. One post will be huge and then it will be kind of meh. And you're like, why? And I think it's just because it's it's rotating when it's your turn to be put kind of front and center, and then you got to go back of the back of the line again. So unless you get shared by someone else, and then it's like, oh, actually, we'll put that post back. It's you know, it's just one of those things. So, but if you say if one person's life is made a little bit better because of this post, and only one person sees it, and that's the one it changes, job done. Yep, that's where I look at it. Brilliant. All right. Well, then you mentioned about your Instagram account. Where else can people find or learn more about you online? Uh, my uh, website, www.chiefnorman.com. Real simple. They can reach me there. Anybody wants to reach me. There's a link on there that says give us feedback. And it comes right to me. I answer everybody's emails. It doesn't have to be about a topic or anything. Uh, just got a question. You want to know where to reach somebody? You know, if I don't know the answer, I'll put you in touch with some really smart people. Well, John, I want to say thank you so much for being so generous with your time coming on the show, but also so vulnerable and transparent. And what I mean by that is a lot of our generations that are listening were raised on this kind of two dimensional chest beating masculinity where the reality is. Most people that actually serve, you know, we there is an impact. There are emotions attached to this, whether it's our desire to help or the impact of losses. But you leading us through your life story and being, you know, having these organic emotions at time, I think adds so much more value to this as well. So I want to thank you for all of those things. My pleasure, sir. James, thank you for having me.